it's not about Fox News and flower beds. Nothing wrong with either of those, but it's not about that. You know, we have been given wisdom and time and hopefully some money in that second chapter of life. We've got to reach down in the next generation and grab a hand and pull it up. And that will allow us all to be happier and leave the world better than we found it. Welcome to Getting Money Right, a show dedicated to helping you achieve financial freedom through education, inspiration, so that you can be free to pursue your true life's purpose. In today's episode, we're going to be interviewing Daryl. Daryl Lyons is an author, a personal finance expert, an ambitious entrepreneur, and he has a company in San Antonio, Texas called Pax Financial Group, uh, Inc. 500, or actually Inc. 5000, one of the fastest growing companies and best places to work. And so Daryl's latest mission is to help people redefine retirement, where they no longer need to think about it as retiring, but rather pivoting into the next chapter of their life. So Daryl, it's great to have you on the show. Leo and I are excited that you're here. Yeah, I love talking with Texans. So Welcome, Daryl. We're glad you're here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Daryl, um, one of the things that jumped out when we first connected, and I read some of your bio and some of the things that you've already done, some of your content, is a phrase that stuck out, and that's behavioral finance. Um, I'd love to just dive into that. Let's, let's hear about that. But before we go there, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about how did you get to where you are today? Maybe a little bit about your family. And uh, just let the audience know who you are and uh, why we're talking today. Yeah, sure. No problem. So I, I grew up in a little small town called Castroville, Texas. I was actually born in Dallas and then moved around different places in Texas, most, mostly South Texas and um, from Harlingen, which is right near Mexico, up to Castroville. But Castroville, we lived in uh, my senior year, we lived in a little trailer uh, park right off the highway. And I was just curious how people made money, really. I mean, how do people have houses without wheels? And <laughs> it just it just struck me as a curiosity thing. And I mean, it was really, um, I nerded out on it a lot. So when I went to college, I uh, ended up working at a bank because the local banker's daughter had a nice house. I thought, you know, being a banker is what it is. Like maybe it was, um, maybe it was a movie I watched. I think I, think I watched uh, a couple of movies where there's bankers and they were successful when I was little. But so I worked at a bank all the way through college. That's how I paid my way through school. Mm-hmm. And then I got another, I got a degree in accounting, another one in finance. So I'm really nerding out on this stuff. <laughs> and I graduated in 1999 from St. Mary's University. And the day after I graduated, I went to work because I needed a job. And so I worked for a big Fortune 100 company and uh, really struggled getting, getting off the ground. But um, somehow, by the grace of God, was able to survive and uh, became rookie of the year. And then I was partner of the year. And I just, you know, well, just the idea of working for some big companies and, and having a career path in New York or Chicago um, troubled me because San Antonio is my home and I love San Antonio and, and it's not a, it's a big city, but it's not a big city in a lot of ways. And so um, I really wanted to be here. So I quit that and me and a couple guys, we started PAX Financial Group and that was about 12 years ago now. And so I've co-founder and I provide leadership here as the CEO and I'm married, uh, Caress and is my wife's name. And I don't know that many people that get to marry a Caress, but I get to marry <laughs> a Caress. That's awesome. <laughs> and she stays home with the kiddos and I have uh, four beautiful kids. And I Wow, spend a lot four of time kids. How many boys, how many girls? Boy and uh, three girls. 
yeah, I spent a lot of time with them and, um, you know, I really have a, a, a very blessed life being able to run the company and, and I literally, uh, can walk to my house. So my commute is really short. I don't sit in traffic. So that, you know, that's, that's just a blessing. So things are, things are good. Um, but it was a long journey to get here. There was a lot of ups and downs and, and frankly, um, you know, just to highlight, uh, kind of how it was, uh, there was a point where I actually had to pay for my mortgage on a, on a cash advance on more than one occasion. And, and wow. so, but, but you know, it's, it's, uh, we're on the other side of that now and I'm thankful and, um, I get to share some of those stories and empathize with people who've been there. Well, that's great. Um, I, first of all, just, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect just for the fact that you, you had the ability to go and work for a fortune 100 company and, and potentially have, you know, the prestige and everything that most people look for, but you, uh, your values held you close to home and obviously your family, man with four kids, you have to be. And, uh, and you did that, you did that because you, you found, um, that the values and the things that you, uh, value more than money or more than status or position, uh, are more important. And, and that's, that's, that says a lot about the person that you are. So that's awesome. Thank you. Okay, so let's dive in into this behavioral finance. Tell us about what that is and, and maybe mention some of, the, some of the writing that you've done. Sure. So behavioral finance is the collision of neurology, psychology, and traditional finance. Mm. And so what we do in behavioral finance is just try to understand human behavior relative to money. And so I'm a certified financial planner, and so I grew up in, a, in an academic um, world where there was something called modern portfolio theory and Harry Markowitz and these Nobel prize winners set a standard for how investments should look. And, and it was somewhat what I would call my, maybe physics envy where they wanted to create some mathematical equations in the world of finance to help make sense of it. Hmm. The problem with these mathematical models, which they have a lot of merit and I, and I still use them today and many people use them and run by them, you know, diversification of a portfolio and, and, and just basic things that you see in the investment world. But people are that those things assume people are rational. <laughs> and we're just not rational beings. And so in about 1970, I may be a little off here, late 70s, a guy named Daniel Kahneman started to create, uh, he was a Nobel Prize guy, and he started to create this area of study called behavioral finance. And it's in the last several years has received a ton of traction in the, in the financial services industry. Because what we've identified is that um, when it comes to investment performance and net worth, growing your net worth, thirteen uh, percent is the investments you pick and how you organize those investments and uh, when you know market timing. But eighty-seven percent of the results of our investments and net worth, eighty-seven percent, is our behavior and the decisions that we make. And so. What I've realized is that we've spent, my, my organization and people that I um, lead have spent too much time on the math side and not enough time on the behavior side. Now, mm. if you know our firm, we've been closely aligned with Dave Ramsey out of Nashville for 15 years yeah. and have a great relationship with his firm. And he's been screaming this forever about behavior, but it's the academics that are finally catching up to Dave. And so I'm really proud of being a part of his organization that's been focused on behavior, we're kind of catching up to him, but uh, with a little bit of a more of maybe of an academic tilt that some people need to hear. 
I think that's really interesting because I love economics and I love finances. But when you study both subjects, it really matters the behavioral side of it. So you've got Richard Thaler on the economic side talking about misbehaving and econs should all act one way based on economics, but we're not econs, we're humans, and we have human behaviors and human emotions, and we do things uh, that don't make sense economically from time to time. The thing that would be in our best interest, we don't do, and it's the same financially. And so I think that's so interesting that you get to dig into this on a daily basis, because I love to study this topic. It is, you know, and as an example for me, you know, I had, a, like I said, I got a degree in accounting, another one in finance, and then I was a certified financial planner, and I, um, I grew up without money. So when I made a little money, the first thing I wanted to do is buy a nice car, just like any other NBA rookie. Right. And, and so I saw this BMW convertible. It was silver and the leather seats. It was just so beautiful. And I, I mean, just an idiot. I just bought it. You know, I smelt the leather. I drove it around. I was like, I'm buying it. And I could not afford that payment. And I yeah. didn't pay cash, obviously. And I knew better. Like, I knew this stuff, but somehow my bias or somehow I justif justified it. And, and I think if, if I was subject to do that and make those risks or take those, uh, make those bad decisions, and I think all of us are. And so how do we take inventory of our biases so then we can make better decisions that are rational, that are rooted in our values, not in emotions or heuristics and rules of thumb? Yeah, that's that's excellent because so much of our just daily decisions is based not so much on practical. I mean, it's it's based on needs or wants and desires. And that's, uh, it's such a huge part of who we are is the emotional side of us. So it's, it's so crucial that people understand that they are emotional beings, and they're going to not always do the rational thing. In fact, that's probably the most common thing that we hear when we're coaching people is that they they kind of they're kind of dumbfounded like why did I do this how did I get myself in this situation and I think for a while people make excuses but eventually they realize man I you know I'm bound to make these mistakes and that's why sometimes coaching or getting some financial advice whether it's for financial advisor or planner or financial coach is so crucial because someone can hold you accountable to the fact that you can walk into a dealer and maybe make the wrong decision and if you have somebody in your life that's holding you accountable it's much easier to make rational decisions and not jump into that emotional thing and potentially you know, wreck your finances, at least for a season. That's a great point. You know, we have, we have clients that are um, economists, senior economists and PhDs, and that's not all our clients. I mean, maybe only a handful, but I always wonder, how do they choose us? I mean, these, these guys are much smarter than me mm. and girls, and, but they choose us because they need somebody to hold them accountable. And uh, we don't want to be held accountable, but we need to. Let me give you an example, maybe a, st a nerdy statistic. In 1975, our savings rate in our country was 17%, and today it's 3.5%. And it's not – I mean, we have so much more information than we did in the 70s, right? I mean, yeah, we all know absolutely. this. So it's not information that's going to help us, right? So we we can't – I mean, we all need to be educated to a certain degree, but it's not information that's going to transform us. So we got to think differently, specifically in the middle class, about what are we going to do different in order to make more rational decisions for, for us to get ahead. And it's not studying more. It's not reading more. That, that's, that's helpful. But it's actually saying, how am I going to change behavior? And many of us need somebody to walk life with us when it comes to money. 
Yeah. When you first sit down with somebody, what are some of the things that you set up as a baseline? How do you help determine what their values are, their priorities? What are the questions that you ask to set that baseline so that everything you do builds on the behaviors that they want and the things that you've learned in behavioral finances? Oh, it's great. You know, we, um, we are actually we're disrupting our own company right now because of this. And so everything that we've thought to be true, we're flipping the tables upside down and saying, we don't, you know, let's do this different. And um, I think it's part of which has been the industry is been more transparent over the last five years. Uh, Really the fiduciary rule that came out has really forced everyone in the industry to either um, be transparent with fees, lower cost, or bring more value. And so we've all been disturbed. And if you haven't been disturbed in our industry, then you know, you're going to be disturbed when, when clients go somewhere else. And so what we've done is we've decided just to flip everything upside down. So I'm making it, I'm going to answer your question. Sorry, but no, it's great. We're actually changing. We're in the midst of just changing and ask, asking ourselves, how can we do it different? We've invested aggressively in some new technology that has a lot of behavioral finance research rooted in it that can walk clients along um, along the way. We've already been using some technology that helps people uh, understand their expectations and concerns and then brings them back to that. And then I even have a deck of values cards that I use that sometimes helps me uh, explore clients' values and, and then come back to those values when they're stuck in a decision. But mm-hmm. we're still not satisfied. We still want to push the envelope and try to find the best mousetrap to help people make better decisions. That's good. Now, Daryl, I know you've written a couple of books, and I think you have another one coming out soon. So I I was reading a little bit about one of your books, and it's the book 18 to 80, A Simple and Practical Guide to Money and Retirement for All Ages. And in this book, you divide um, our financial life in three distinct sections. Can you tell us what they are? What are these three sections? Uh, And then describe each one of them for us briefly. Tell us what that looks like. Yeah, everything in this book is built about around retirement, but I have to make sure that it's clear that retirement is not um, the traditional sense of retirement. You know, we think about retirement and one definition is very nerdy definition, the disposition of an asset over its useful life. And that would assume somebody's life's no longer useful. So, <laughs> but I want to, I want to identify a point in time that we have to respect. And that point of time is when our body ages and we might not be able to do what we used to do in terms of employment. And the fact that we're living longer and Richard Thaler testified to this in his book, um, the longevity risk, I believe that's what it's called. And, um, or the longevity project. And so the fact that there's a certain point where we might not get, be able to earn the same income and work and, and we might live long. So we've got to respect that point in time. And so I, I pinpoint that time in the book for ease of understanding to be age 60. Now, between age 18 and age 60, what we are doing financially is we are actually preparing for that age. And so that I call that prepare. And there's many things that you have to do. You have to make sure that you may have good spending habits. Um, I can talk more about that, but just generally speaking, everything we do in the first phase, 18 to 60, is preparing for that age 60. Then at 60, from 60 to 65, we pivot. It's not retirement. It's pivoting into the next chapter. And and the idea is, is to take inventory of your spending, have conversations with your spouse, practice the transition, and then at 65, that's when we move into the last phase, and that's purpose. 
and we move into a phase where we have purpose and what we've identified. And I think you guys know this, you speak of it a lot is that those people who have purpose, they are happier. And in fact, they live seven years longer. Right. And so we can't discount the idea of purpose. We actually have to magnify the idea of purpose in the second chapter of life. It's not about Fox News and flower beds, nothing wrong with either of those, but it's not about that. You know, we have been given wisdom and time and hopefully some money in that second chapter of life. We've got to reach down to the next generation and grab a hand and pull it up. And that will allow us all to be happier and leave the world better than we found it. So it's prepare, pivot, and purpose. That's excellent. I love I love the way you broke that down. And also, the I think we are, David and I certainly are, are right with you 100% when it comes to the definition of retirement. We don't believe that uh, there's ever a season in your life that you're not useful. In fact, the more you age, the more life experience you have, the more useful you can be. And yes, there comes a point where either you want to or you have to maybe stop working at the pace that you did when you were 30 or 40. But when if you properly prepare for that time, then this next season of purpose can be such a wonderful season of your life because you have the, the bandwidth to be able to help so many people. And that's really going to give you so much joy. And and then you don't have to worry about, well, what am I going to do for to make a living for myself? That that's already you've already prepared for that. And then you pivot into this season of purpose. I love that. I think this is a clear description of what our life and how our finances should be managed in such a way so that we can ultimately engage in our full, full, 100% full-time purpose. Well, I think it's wonderful that you focus so much on the purpose point and that statistic that people live seven years longer if they're operating with some kind of purpose in their life, they're really going towards something. Seven years is huge. I mean, that's got to be uh, statistically relevant beyond even what you eat and you know the some of the other health habits that would be very impactful an extra seven years based on the relationships and on the purpose that you have for your life that's a big deal and that's something that we talk about uh, on getting money right is the importance of setting up your finances so that you can live out your purpose and your calling and so what do you do when you get somebody to age 60 and you begin to pivot over those five years to 65 and then open up that purpose. How do you explore that? How do you pull that out of people? What does that look like? That is a real challenge. And, um, you know, we're, we're limited in our skill sets. Um, we can certainly have the conversation, but there's people like you guys that will walk alongside as a financial coach and help unroot that even better than we will. We're, we're good at asking the difficult dis questions to disturb people mm -hmm. and then uh, make them chew on it and, and, and think about it and have conversations. But uh, some of the questions that we might ask is um, about their life story. You know, one of the easiest way to identify purpose is, in my opinion, nobody's life story is wasted, Romans 8.28. And so what happens is we always have a climax of our life story, a time where we had pain or struggle and somebody reached down and helped us or maybe didn't help us. And it's the climax of our life story that we find that purpose. And I was sitting down with an attorney, very successful man, and um, over uh, Starbucks and we were having this conversation and he told me that he uh, growing up lived in a in a house that he could touch both walls it was so small and they had no heat and they were all they would all snuggle up I don't know four or five kids and he was telling me they were so poor that his uncle came in and said I'm not gonna let my uh, nephews live like this and he paid for their education Mm. And and in the midst of that conversation, uh, he was tearing up. He said, I wouldn't have even gone to college if it wasn't for my uncle. And I said, there's your purpose. 
And I don't, I believe there's a lot of different ways to find your purpose. There's been a lot of good books on this. I've just found the easiest one is to, to identify somebody's life story because, you know, we've heard before the phrase um, from the hole in the gospel, uh, break my heart for what breaks yours. And so when we see hearts broken because of something that happened in our lives, that's the, that's low hanging fruit to, uh, to, to develop a purpose around. I think that's really cool. We focus a lot on natural talents and then again on passions and those things that really tug at your heart because that's going to point to some of those things that you're not going to get tired in. You're not going to get exhausted. You're going to work harder. You're going to go further. And so when you're operating in those natural talents along with those passion points and those places where your heart can't help but go forward, like you just, you see the news in an area and, and it, piques your interest and you jump up and you think somebody ought to do something about this. And then you sit down and flip the channel. Well, that's not a passion point because you sat down and flipped the channel, but then you flip the channel and there's something else on the news and you can't help but get out your computer and start figuring out a solution to that problem. Now you've found a purpose point. And so now you're chasing that you're going full speed and it's going to take you further. It's going to force you to live seven years longer because you have to accomplish it. It's something that is put inside of you. So I think that's really cool the way that you guys do that. When you're looking at somebody in those first 18 to 60 years and they're in the wealth accumulation stage and they're growing, what are some of the major behavior issues that you run into over and over again? Yeah, there's a lot. And, and, you know, we, um, we've identified that some of them are, um, maybe more on the front end, maybe age 18 and some of them are 40 and they're all kind of different, right? Age 18, age 40, age 50, they're all different, but I'll, let me speak to the ones that are maybe in the 18 and, and that way, if anybody's listening to this and they're 18, cool. If not, somebody maybe knows somebody's 18. This is what I would share with somebody who's 18, 19, 20. Is um, we are, and I speak to the middle class, and it's not an indictment to social classes, but those that are in a in lower economic classes and uh, maybe living on a government subsidy, they have different needs and different solutions. Mm-hmm. And those that um, are have yachts, they have different needs and different solutions. So I, I it's not a class of a clash here of, of social classes. It's I'm very focused on the middle class because those needs and solutions I understand. Mm-hmm. So the, the the problem with the middle class right now is that the marketing is just out of control. You know, if you go into an appliance store and they uh, they'll plug in some apple pie smells, sales go up 23%. And uh, Christmas comes around and it's Super Bowl for marketers and we are clueless. I I just I just I'm dumbfounded by how quickly we can buy stuff and that friction is completely gone and the fact that we can one click pay or you know on an Amazon and and I'm guilty of this too on Amazon it's so easy to buy something optical pay you can buy on your watch before you know it you don't have any money left and you're asking yourself why can't I give why can't I save why can't I pay down debt and it's all these nickels and dimes because marketers have the middle class Mm. and um, it is, they're brilliant. I mean, we all know this, they're complete, you get chocolate. I mean, they'll give you chocolate and, and it's more likely that you'll purchase. There's, there's behavioral finance things called anchoring. They'll put an expensive jacket next to regular price ones and you'll buy the regular price ones and they're like, yeah, we knew you'd buy that one. We just put the expensive one there so you think you got a deal. It's just right. unbelievable. And yeah. so and if you're young and you're developing habits, you've got to start being aware of this. And developing a pause to your purchase and, and thinking about it. Do I need it? Do I love it? Does it make sense? And, and by doing so, 
you create new neural pathways of in your decision making and and you retrain your brain i think that has to happen early in in your process of being an adult now as you move into your 40s um you, you maybe have to unwind some mess right and that's where dave ramsey is brilliant with paying down debt and so we we you know certainly endorse that kind of behavior and paying down debt and saving 15% of your gross income is really where we, we, you know, research keeps coming back at that 15%. I've seen 16.67. <laughs> right. And then, and then in, in your fifties, here's the interesting thing about your fifties, your fifties pay increases don't happen like they used to. It kind of gets static. And so you may have to have to catch up and catching up's fine, but you may need side hustles. You may need to Uber and you, or you may need an Amazon or you may need to do a few things. There's plenty of online stuff, but you need to hustle and you can't expect your W-2 check to do that for you. Now you do need to max out all your retirement accounts, but you might need to do some other things. And so, you know, those are different kind of data points that I would point to that, that I would suggest that are very, very important for each uh, demographic. That's good. And I do appreciate the fact that you've identified the middle class because really when we look at the the biggest target market that both the the financial institutions and the marketing and all of that they're targeting that that group of people mostly and so we need to equally try to provide that knowledge and that education and the tools and resources that it's going to help them to make better decisions and to to understand that behavior um when we're not aware of what's happening, especially when it comes to marketing that we fall into the these traps honestly is is getting into a trap of purchasing something without really understanding its full consequence. And it's so crucial that what you're talking about is really educating. And and I think that education doesn't just, yes, maybe it starts with somebody that's maybe 16 to 18, but it's lifelong. I mean, I kind of woke up to the fact that the way I was managing money wasn't the best way when I ran out of the ability to borrow and I didn't have enough money to pay for everything. And it, you know, it was sort of like that rude awakening, but somebody should have taught me before that to say, hey, you're going down the wrong path. Unfortunately, I didn't have anybody in my life at that time to help me to see it. But once I was awakened to it, once that voice did come through and I understood it, then my journey just began. I realized now that everything that I was doing was wrong or the way I was behaving was wrong. It was counterintuitive and it was damaging to my finances. So then I began to change my behavior. But I think all of us would agree it takes time. It takes time to retrain. You said it, it literally neural pathways in your brain that begin to form to help you to make decisions that are rational and wise rather than emotional and quick and damaging. So I love the way you define that because I think sometimes people don't understand why they get into the, the issues that they get into financially. But uh, talking about it, uh, you know, your book and so many different resources that are available today and just having a voice to be able to tell other people, hey, this is what's happened to me and this is what I've learned through that. And now I can, you know, I'm doing something different and this is the result. Um, that's so, so valuable to to people. So earlier you mentioned about the, the preparation station, how the behavior that some people have, sometimes it's the, the way they manage money and the behavior that they um I forget exactly how you said it, but you said we can come back to it. So I'd love to go back to that if you remember what we were talking about. We are talking about in the preparation stage how people's behavior and spending habits, I think that's what you said, uh, are unique and different. And maybe that's something that you can maybe expand on so that we can educate our audience more about how do we make that season of our life, the preparation stage, how do we make that more successful? Yeah, I, I, I want to make sure people know that I've really – I've spoken to kneecap to kneecap 
thousands and thousands of people about their money in very intimate ways in the middle class. Mm. Um, you know, we, I just, I've had so many conversations with people about money and I've explored, I've looked under the hoods from people who are making millions to people who are making 20,000. I mean, over and over and over again, it's, it, frankly, I've, I've exhausted, you know, it's, it's exhausting, you know, yeah, but, yeah. but I say all that because um, we're all in this together. We mm -hmm. really, you know, think other people have it better than we do. And, and it's just not the case. You know, maybe, maybe a friend from college has a, a nicer house, but what you may not know is he inherited grandma's money. Mm. We don't know this stuff. You know, we make right. assumptions all the time and we're our own worst critic and Facebook and Pinterest certainly do some damage as well. And our point of reference is definitely skewed and it's, Gosh, is it, it? It's so hard for us in America, the richest nation in the history of the world, to be content. Mm -hmm. And so, it's not uncommon for me to go online and see somebody that is going to Cabo San Lucas and thinking, "Man, I wish I could go there." Um, yeah. But I know what four plane tickets cost for my children and me and my wife, and you know, it's expensive. But I, um, I, I just want people to know that they have. We have to take inventory of how much these external influences are affecting our decision making and mm -hmm. and it's okay we're all we're i, I want to say this very clearly we're all in this together um and and if we can just articulate where we're at i, I think we'd be a little bit more healthy and just for example if somebody invites you out to dinner and maybe you don't have it in your budget saying we don't have it in our budget mm -hmm. <laughs> being okay with that very healthy <laughs> you know, and, and we're just not there yet for a lot of people, but it's an okay thing. And we, for example, for many, many years, we've used cash envelopes. And if the cash is gone, then we, you know, it's beans and rice for our families. And that was a habit we needed for our family. Mm -hmm. And we did that for 12 years. And, and there was not, it was not uncommon for people to think, um, why, you know, are you okay financially? Is everything okay? And I just, you know, I just said, well, we just put constraints on our spending and it's just a very mature thing to do and i i had on more than one occasion people uh, make comments about a car i had because it wasn't uh, what they expected a financial advisor to be driving mm -hmm. or you know there's comments over and over again i had to get over that because i knew that i was making decisions within within the framework of my income that's good and, and so yeah that I, my point in all that is that we have in the middle class these marketing machines that are just aggressively targeting at us and putting magic kingdom on your kid's phone to where then they go to you and say why aren't we going to disneyland and then you're seeing your buddy from high school go to disneyland and all, all of a sudden you feel this anxiety and pressure to do that and i just want you guys to let go of that or let i want your listeners to let go of that and say just just be yourself we're all in this money thing together do what you can afford. If you need to do a picnic, I know one time I couldn't afford a, a date with my daughter. So I just laid out a blanket in a field and we had crackers and a sandwich and, and she loved it. Mm -hmm. And, and it, you know, you can innovation or constraints breed innovation. And so, right. the, you know, when you have constraints, you just get creative. And so that's the, that's the dilemma in the middle class, but it's, it's not insurmountable. It's one we can overcome. Yeah. We talk about this a lot on the show, the budget, and healthy boundaries and learning to say no. 
and that it's okay, that it actually causes you to be more healthy and it gives other people an opportunity to learn from you and to find out they can say no too, that they don't have to go out with their friends or they don't have to buy everyone in their family a gift and that you can begin to set those boundaries in advance, communicate them clearly, and it completely changes the conversation and your financial outlook. And I love that you're talking about contentment because it is something that we all struggle with. Literally every single person, the person going to Cancun is looking at the person going to Cabo San Lucas thinking, oh, I wish I could go there. And that person's looking at the family that's going to Magic Kingdom saying, oh, I wish I could take my family there. And the family that's going to Magic Kingdom is looking at the family traveling to Europe and saying, oh, I wish I could go there. I mean, the the contentment, if you don't establish it early on, You'll never have it because you can have a wonderful lifestyle, but always be looking to the next person and saying, oh, I wish I had what they have. I wish I had what they have. And I was a marketing major in college. And I remember one of my advertising professors showing the statistics that the majority of advertisements are set to make people feel discontent. They want you to feel discontent with what you have so that you will go and purchase their product to feel better about yourself. And so this is something that we all struggle with. And the only way to root out that that discontentment is through gratitude and looking at others that you can serve and even potentially bless someone financially that's going through a tough time. So how do you add in this idea of giving and generosity, serving others? How do you add that into the overall financial picture? It's a good question. You know, when we do study behavioral finance, there's that neurological side. And so we have to recognize that when we are, um, when we're spending and buying on Amazon, um, we do get a dopamine burst, right? And then we go and open the package and get that dopamine burst again. And, um, and it feels good. And, and we got to ask ourselves, why, why, why do we need this dopamine burst? What's missing in our lives? And some of it is uh, community. We lack the community and the oxytocin that comes with a hug or a high five. And mm. so we have to take inventory there. Yeah. And then we have to take inventory as well with our giving. And giving is, uh, you know, my first book that I wrote, I wrote with my faith being very um, transparent and vulnerable throughout the book. But this book, I actually um, made it available to anybody that maybe didn't align with my faith. So I don't really express it as much, even though um, you'll see it throughout the book that the scriptures really are, are good about. Um, there's 3,000 scriptures, over 3,000 scriptures on money. So it's really easy for me to talk about money because I love the word of God. But when it comes to giving, I wanted to talk about it from a different angle to, in this book. And I wanted to talk about it from the research angle. And the reality is those that give, um, this is from Notre Dame, those that give um, are less likely to suffer from depression, right? And, and those, and they did, a, they did a continued study, and this was a different study, and they gave a bunch of people uh, $20 bills. They did it with $5 bills as well. And let's say that we'll use the $20 bill as an example. They gave them $20 bills at the beginning of the day, at the end of the day, they did a survey. Some of them had to spend the money. Some of them had to give it away. Those that gave it away at the end of the day were happier. So we're seeing from a secular perspective, um, not a Christian perspective, a secular perspective of how giving, systematic and substantial giving, changes us physiologically. 
and with with us collectively in the richest nation in the history of the world have heightened depression and anxiety we have we have to ask ourselves are we holding too tight to our money and is that causing some of the problem and i'm going to suggest to you the research has been clear here those that give systematically and substantially have less depression and anxiety and are happier and so there's there's a lot to that not just the transaction itself but the joy of participating in a community of people and being a part of that community and seeing you know getting a newsletter when i when i get a newsletter from some of these ministries and i read about it it reframes my point of reference because i was just on facebook complaining about somebody who goes to cabo and now i'm now i have a point of reference saying why was i complaining again this guy's in a foreign country and living off beans and rice and these it's unbelievable what he's doing there why was i complaining so this idea of test me in this as we see in the word of god test me in this um i am a believer now i've been a believer for a long time and as a result of my own personal uh commitment to giving i feel comfortable and confident of encouraging others to do it as well that's excellent it's excellent yeah we we've actually talked about this many times on our podcast how how important giving is to understanding and being content uh, understanding how to manage money because if you continue to feed the monster right is the dopamine rush that we continue to get it's never it's never going to satisfy. In fact, it creates more hunger. And the way you break that, the way you begin to manage that is by including giving, by realizing that you can actually set a, a portion of your finances aside to help someone else that needs it or to free yourself up so you can do something for someone else and, and not have to work so much to pay, you know, to pay for everything and have a higher lifestyle. So we, we totally... Um, are right there with you on that. It's been our personal journey that giving does make you happier. It makes you richer in the in all the ways that it, that matters the most. Well, Daryl, I just want to thank you for being with us. I know that we can probably continue to talk for another thirty to forty minutes. I know, I know, we certainly enjoy it, and perhaps we'll have you back once your book comes out, and we'd love to to hear more about how that's going. Uh, but before we go, I'd love for you to tell us how do people get in touch with you? Where can they go to find out more about you, about your company, and some of the services that you offer? Sure. You can always go to our website, paxfinancialgroup.com. That's Paul Apple X-Ray, paxfinancialgroup.com. You can learn about us there, um, and um, you can explore some of the services that we offer, which is you know investment management, but but mainly us just walking life with somebody and making sure that they make wise decisions. And um, we want to leave this world better than we found it. And we want to help our clients do the same. Well, we're grateful for you, grateful for what you're doing, grateful for the, the life that you're living and the help that you're offering to many, many people. So thanks again for taking uh, your precious time and being with us today. Thank you, our audience, for being with us. Uh, we are so grateful that you joined us with this episode. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to write us a review and uh, to just connect with us over social media in any way that you can let us know how we're doing. We'd love to know if the content we're producing is helping you. We hope it is, but we'd love to hear from you so that we know it is. And uh, if there's anything we can do to help you more, please let us know and we'd love to do it. If you want to know more about Getting Money Right and you want to know more about what we do and the resources that we offer, you can go to leosabo.com. And finally, we look forward to having you join us next time so that together... We, we can, can keep, keep getting, getting money, money right. right. I believe there's a lot of different ways to find your purpose. There's been a lot of good books on this. 
I've just found the easiest one is to, to identify somebody's life story because when we see hearts broken because of something that happened in our lives, that's the that's low hanging fruit to uh, to to develop a purpose around. Mm-hmm.